Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. One in five students say they've had COVID. Is that a problem? Plus lots to discuss on student transfers, climate change and Brexit. It's all coming up. They're not prepared themselves. They haven't. They've had four and a half years and they have not been preparing throughout the entirety of that time. It is so infuriating, the disaster that we're staring down the barrel of. As Claire says, Erasmus needs to be supported. So does Horizon. And when I say Horizon needs to be supported, we need to be in the Europe. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Jim Dickinson, still up in the attic, but here to simplify the complexity and complexify... Actually, I'm not sure complexify is a word. So, anyway, complexify the simplicity. As usual, we have two fabulous guests. Uh, In Wrexham, Claire Taylor is Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Wrexham Glyndor University. Claire, your highlight of the week? Uh, My highlight of the week, definitely Wednesday, when we broadcast our Above and Beyond Staff Awards at the University. A fantastic online celebration of uh, incredible achievements across our staff community. So a really uplifting moment, uh, and especially as we come to the end of a challenging term and as we look forward to the Christmas break. Excellent. And well done, obviously, to all involved. And in Camberwell, Johnny Rich is Chief Exec of the Engineering Professors Council, amongst many other roles. Johnny, your highlight of the week? Uh, my highlight of the week was one professional one, which was that yesterday I chaired a webcast that the EPC did on fair access into engineering. And it was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. So interesting. And I have a personal highlight of the week, which was that I'm delighted to hear that my daughter does not have COVID, despite sitting next to someone in maths who does. <laughs> Excellent. Well, again, congratulations to all involved. So, yes, we start this week with student transfers. Uh, this week, the Office for Students published data on students who transfer and restart their course in England. Johnny, what's going on? Well, um, imagine you're a student who rolls up at university and you find you don't like it. You've got basically three options. One is drop out, one is transfer to a different course, um, and another is transfer to a different university, possibly a different course. Um, Of course, just not liking it isn't the only possible reason why you might want to transfer. You could also find yourself ill, find yourself with financial problems, housing problems, needing to move home um, to look after family, all sorts of things. Um, And this data released by the OFS gives us a bit of an idea of how big a problem this actually is, or how big of an issue. It's not necessarily a problem. Um, And it seems like about one in 30 students is transferring. And the figure seems to be moving downwards slightly. Um, But there are lots of data problems with getting that number. And it looks as though, frankly, if you ask me, they've missed out quite a lot of transfers, I think. Um, So it's not a small issue. And... Um, the next question is about whether students have to start from scratch when they transfer. And the answer to that is mostly yes. Um, only about one in 100 students gets to transfer with credit, uh, as by my reading of their data. Um, and so obviously, starting again means you're going to have to 
pay more fees, you're going to have more maintenance costs and so on. I mean, we the flexibility of transfer is good. We want that. Students should be able to adapt to change circumstances or realise that um, something might be better for them if they did something different. Uh, but obviously the problem doesn't land on everyone equally and this data shows us that yet again it's the students from disadvantaged backgrounds who end up being the most likely to have to transfer. Um, at one end of the scale you've got students with parents and friends at university, um, personalised careers guidance at school, money for nice accommodation and perhaps less need to get a part-time job. And at the other end of the scale, you've got someone who's first in family to university, doubts about whether university is even for the likes of me, um, whose guidance, such as it was, was about whether or not they could get to university at all, not where or what to study. And they're struggling financially um, with staying at university. And there are thousands of individuals falling between those two extremes. And we need to make it easier for those who need more help to make it work basically. Claire, this is interesting, isn't it? So when students transfer, I guess the way this is framed is students have made the wrong choice. Should we be trying to fix that, you know, pre-arrival with better information, advice and guidance? Or should we be trying to fix that through much better transfer arrangements? Or both? I don't know. Yeah, no, I think there's an element to both, Jim. And uh, you're absolutely right. You know, we want students to to start off on, on the right course, if at all possible. And you know, liaising with um, schools, colleges, um, adult learning um, uh, groups as well to ensure that students are getting that right advice is absolutely vital. But we also want to make to make it as easy as possible uh, for students to transfer. You know perhaps early on, perhaps at the end of year one, if they haven't quite got it right. Um, I, I was quite interested as well in the, in, in the report in that um, the, the way I read it was that the student characteristics associated with underrepresentation uh, are often also associated with an increased likelihood to restart study. And that got me thinking around sort of issues around resilience, uh, particularly for our widening access students. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, often these students are, they're really good at, at, at disclosing um issues, support that they need, they will accept help uh, and and therefore they're, they're, they're often, you know, more likely to, to restart study, which is really good. Um, but I think there's also possibly an issue for us, a bigger issue around the ease of credit transfer. Uh, it does seem that there's a very low proportion of students who are actually able to take credit with them, um, whether it's internally or externally. And there's a bigger piece of work there, I think, for the for the sector in terms of looking at, you know, just how easy is it to take credit with you if you think that you want to make a, a change. Credit transfer is one of those things which has been uh, the bane of higher education's life for decades. It, you know, universities just failing to be willing to recognise what they might have learned at another university. And um, I can see the problems, but it's something, it's one of the things that Augur, the Augur review was trying to fix, actually. Um, and there aren't many things in the Augur review that I, I'm a fan of. But one of them was, was the fact that um, he recommend that, recommended that students should gain qualifications along the way. They should or gain recognition for where they have got to at every year of um, study, which would create a um, by default transfer system, credit transfer system. And it would also mean that dropout becomes less of a problem because transfer is a, is a sort of less extreme version of dropout. Uh, it's about being some of the 
some of the causes of dropout are the same causes for transfer, although obviously transfer is a is a less extreme um, way of it taking shape. Claire, if, if, if more students from disadvantaged backgrounds are ending up in a position where they have to transfer without credit, you know, this restarting issue, I mean, it strikes me that in some ways you could frame that as you know, pretty straightforward structural discrimination. There is a there is a worse outcome for these students in terms of you know the level of debt and you know the lot the the opportunity cost of a year of of of, of their lives. Should should we you know should we make it easier to drop out rather than framing it as drop out? Um, you know, should we make it okay to do the sorts of things that Johnny's talking about in terms of stepping on and stepping off and 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 and, and try and cushion that exit? Because you know whatever's going on here, some students are. Clear Clearly, making a choice that they'd resolve halfway through that year, or you know, two, x weeks into the year, isn't for them. Yeah, I, I think there are t- there are two potential issues. I think um, there is potentially a, a discrimination issue and perhaps a, a bias issue, an unconscious bias issue, in terms of how students are maybe supported and advised. Um, you know, from even even pre-entry into university uh, around course advice, uh, as I mentioned before, I think there's still a lot of work to do there. Uh, and as we've seen, you know, the whole um, sort of um, uh, ad- advice within schools and colleges has been you know, p- pretty much disassembled um, over the over the past long while now. Um, and it, it, I think it's difficult for students to get good advice around uh, you know what their choices might be. In terms of you know making it easy uh, to to hop on hop off if you like, I think yes and no. I mean, <laughs> the, the danger is that once we lose a student, um, sometimes other things get in the way, and it's harder for students to come back in. I mean, certainly uh, at Wrexham Glindor you know we put a lot of effort into supporting our students who have perhaps chosen to take a year out to suspend their studies uh, and we're pleased that you know the majority do come back to us uh, but sometimes other opportunities come along along the way there's also a kind of public perception thing isn't there around you know um, this kind of peer pressure um, you know do students feel that they've kind of failed in some way if, if they choose to to uh, take some time out or to or to do something different uh, perhaps we're kind of overprivileging that you know the nature of, of achieving that kind of full degree which makes those decisions harder for students as well we're we're very strange in this country the way we treat dropout it's not we have low dropout rates but that's partly because we place such a taboo on it which just doesn't exist in other countries uh, many countries they recognize that completing a full course of study is not necessarily um, what everyone will do, nor is it necessarily desirable. The point of going to university is to achieve a certain level that any individual needs, and maybe you will come back later in life. And we need to facilitate that as much as possible by making the system more flexible to um, come in, come out, which requires transfer, because you can't assume somebody will always go back to the same institution. Okay, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi there, my name is Alex Usher. I'm the president of Higher Education Strategy Associates, a consultancy based in Toronto. My article this week is on the Canadian system of university admissions. The key point in the article is that our admission system is quite different from the United Kingdom in that, it play, in that examinations play very little role. Most of the decisions are based on secondary school marks awarded by teachers. Um, taken at about halfway through the final year of secondary school, so the, the probably about February or March. 
Um, there's a number of reasons for this, but the key one, the key enabler of this system is the fact that the prestige hierarchy of institutions in Canada is much flatter than it is in either the UK or the US. And one of the things the prestige hierarchy does is it requires people to make really fine micro distinctions in the quality of students. Um, but when you have a system where, you know, our equivalent of the Russell Group uh, takes in 50% of all undergraduates or, you know, the University of Toronto, our top institution, takes in more students than all of the, um, the Ivy League combined, you'll see there just isn't the same kind of competition for students. And that allows us to take a much more uh, relaxed approach, I would say, to admissions than, than most countries in the world. Today's students have access to opportunities, tools and technologies that no generation has ever had. But they also face a deeply uncertain future. The pandemic, digital disruption, widening social inequality and a hugely challenging labour market. Universities aspire to prepare students with the knowledge, skills and behaviours that will enable them to thrive as professionals and citizens in a world that's constantly evolving. And students are looking to understand how to mobilise their knowledge to make an impact and shape the future of their profession and their community. Join us on 12th of January for a wonky at home event in partnership with Adobe, where we'll explore which skills, competencies and mindsets best enable students to succeed and how they can be made tangible in the curricula. We'll hear insights from students and academics on the skills students need to thrive and we'll consider whether the current political framing of the value and quality of university courses really captures universities' own aspirations for their graduates. That's Skills to Thrive, 12th of January. Book now at wonky.com events. Right now, next up, the Office for National Statistics has published the third tranche of experimental statistics from its pilot Students and COVID Insights survey, following up a limited first release with a more nationally representative sample. Claire, what's going on in here? Right, well, <laughs> this is, uh, as you say, the latest release from the Office for National Statistics, the uh, pilot Students COVID Insights survey. This collected information from students um, about their experience sort of you know, middle of November, middle end of November. Um, and it was really investigating the sort of plans, opinions and well-being of students um, in England. And really, you know, there, there are clearly some um, ongoing concerns um, real concerns around student mental health and well-being um, and ongoing elements of uh, dissatisfaction with both um, the academic and the social experience that's that's on offer at universities currently. But the big question, I think, is, you know, is the kind of, so what question, uh, you know, what are we going to do about this? Will anyone take any notice of this feedback? And will anyone take any notice at a kind of policy level, uh, whether that's government policy, but perhaps as well uh, at public health level as well? Because, you know, we, we know there are perhaps issues around some of the uh, how some of the public health uh, campaigns have been organised around students. And of course, responsibilities for individual universities. So, um, these concerns are not going away. Um, they are very real. Uh, and um, I think, you know, the response both of the sector and of government is is critical really at this time. Johnny, what uh, what jumped out from for, for you in, in here? Uh, two things, really. I mean, the, the mental health data is really worrying. Um, it, it's impossible to say whether it would have been better to keep universities closed to all but a few students for the last term and to have taught everything. By which you mean campuses, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, sorry, campuses. We'll we'll get the metaphorical post bag full of, you know, we've never closed. (laughs) Actually, um, uh, no, I I don't necessarily mean only 
campuses. I mean, perhaps we should have started the academic year. I mean, I know, of course, universities are doing all sorts of things, even when they are, in inverted commas, closed. But um, we could have started the academic year with a staggered start in January. There were people who were suggesting that. I was among them. And it that might have been a better thing to do. And it's all it's all very well to say, well, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't be where we are now. We are where we are. Um, but the thing that really upsets me is that it is beginning to look like rather than um, failing to make things better for students, perhaps over the past couple of months, we've been actually actively making them worse. And um, and that's very troubling. And we need. <laughs> every university I know how hard it has been for academics and for university leaders it, you know they are trying everything they possibly can and they have the best will in the world uh, but mental health has really got to take the top priority here and you wrote an excellent um, piece about this on uh, on the wonky website about um, the need for it not just to be um, <laughs> whitewashing <laughs> or yes we must do something about mental health uh, but um, we are reaching crisis levels I think with all this data suggests that we are the other thing that struck me um, is that I don't think there's much that we can learn about from the satisfaction data actually I don't think it tells us very much satisfaction is a function of expectation versus delivery and it, so existing students coming back had pre-existing expectations, um, which haven't been met, and new students had high hopes, which haven't been met. And um, so, you know, how many of us in any walk of life would have said that 2020 has been satisfactory? I, I haven't met too many people who would say that. Claire, on this, um, I mean, you, you know, you, you work in a, in a university in Wales, which, you know, four or five weeks ago was a country that allocated a huge chunk of money to support both universities and students' unions with, 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 with mental health. You know, certainly comparatively in comparison to the funding that's been sort of adorned on, you know, the English sector. Uh, you know, a massive wedge of money. Is that, is it enough? Does that, does, does that, does that fix the problem or are, or are there wider things going on? <laughs> Um, it, it, it's certainly been very welcome, and, you, and you're right. Um, I think, you, you know, in terms of a, a, a government response, what Wales did do the right thing. We were allocated across the sector, I think it was about £10 million back in October, end of October, including dedicated funding for student unions, which was absolutely fantastic. And certainly, you know, at our university, we were able to work with our student union, help them to think about how they were going to use the money. Uh, and they've certainly focused on, you know, as much as they can, on um, supporting activities that um, help that sense of belonging and engagement for students, which is so difficult at the moment. I was talking to our CEO of, of, of our SU um, last week and she said, you know, Claire, it's just really tough. You know, student unions are all about engagement and it's, it's really, really hard. So, you know, that money has made a difference. I think, I mean, there are, there's a whole... Um, there's a bit of a perfect storm of issues here, though, isn't there? And um, I think a combination of factors that are leading to these sorts of you know, feedback and statistics. Um, and I think a lot of it has been down to, um, to be quite frank, you know, p poor communications on the part of perhaps some universities, poor communications around you know, the nature of teaching and learning, exactly what is going to be on offer. Um, there's been poor handling and communication around you know, lockdown situations in halls of residence at some of our large universities. And there's been poor support um, 
to fill the gap made by the fact that many students have felt isolated. You know, there has to be practical things put in place. And, you know, talking to colleagues across the sector, um, you know, people are working incredibly hard, but it's clearly landing quite differently um, in different contexts and in different university settings. And there is clearly still um, unhappiness uh, across the student body. I think, uh, you know, Johnny's point around the fact that, um, you know, aspects of, of the student unhappiness is is around aspects that are not you know, specific to university, um, you know, lockdown situations, not able to take part in, um, you know, sports teams or whatever it might be, not being able to socialise as freely as you as you might be able to, you know, the whole country is having to deal with that. And I think there's also something to kind of unpick with surveys like this around the fact that, um, yes, students may express, you know, deep unhappiness and, and justifiably so. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't always understand why universities are having to take the measures they're having to take and that's certainly some of the conversations I've had with our student union um, you know it's a it's a very very difficult situation but they kind of get it um, it's not great um, but they get it and, and we do know there's yeah there is some hope and light at, a light at the end of the tunnel on the horizon as well. Johnny, this thing about, you know, satisfaction being anchored to, you know, concepts of expectation. Did, 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 is, is there a danger that universities overcooked, you know, what was going to be possible this year and have raised expectations? Or is this just, you know, a kind of, a kind of the realities of having to be a student during COVID, which, you know, whether people were, you know, wherever they're doing that from it involves lots of social distancing and lots of restrictions? Yes. <laughs> to both. Uh, I mean, yes, it was, they overcooked it um, for very good reasons. Um, one, they thought they could would be able to deliver more. Um, the government was telling them to deliver the most that they possibly could. Um, and the government was all saying, the government was saying, oh, it'll be over by the autumn, which was pretty obvious it wouldn't be. And um, then they were telling us it would be over by Christmas. Again, <laughs> it isn't. And um, so universities also, with the best will in the world, were trying to do their best for students, trying to offer what they hoped to deliver. Um, there may have been some uh, over-marketing of it, but I don't really think so. I think it was just a genuine attempt to say what they hoped to offer, and the reality was very different. And the reality is that you can't exist as a st student in the normal way, in abnormal times. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I put this in the blog. There's a couple... Of, the way in which they framed both the academic experience and the non-academic experience, and even the way in which they framed the academic experience around... They've used phrases like learning delivery. So it's very odd, whoever's written the kind of survey inside ONS. But I think we've learned... I mean, we knew this already, didn't we? But I think we've learned something really important, haven't we, about even for part-time commuter students, this kind of idea of interacting with other students is really bloody important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, learning is a social experience and, and being social is a learning experience and you can't separate that and you shouldn't try. Claire, I mean, let's 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 just have a quick look at this um, infection number. I mean, I'm, most of the papers didn't get this far, and I suspect that's because you know journalists are busy. I mean, not that I'm saying I'm living a life of lazy luxury here in my attic, but <laughs> I got as far in the goo in the in the Excel sheet as looking at the self declaration on infection, and it's extraordinary. So, six percent of students in this survey say they've had a positive antibody or swab test, and thirteen percent haven't, but reckon they've had COVID. If it's one in five students. 
students, albeit this is England only, but if it's one in five students that say they've had COVID, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I mean, we, we, we know there are all sorts of issues, you know, potentially around the testing and certainly the, the free flow testing that's going on at the moment. As, you know, we've seen the kind of caveats all, all, all the way around that uh, in terms of how accurate is it? You know, what's it actually picking up? Um, and then. Yeah, exa- exactly. All those sorts of things. You know, does will a student really go and take the test and run the risk of, of having a positive, you know, certificate, if you like, and then knowing that they can't go home for another couple of weeks? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, our students are adults and, you know, we have to trust them to make, you know, great decisions around their own personal safety and, and the safety and well-being of those around them. And I think by and large, you know, students are doing that. Um but I mean, the other the other point I want to make is, you know, with this whole piece, um, there has been so much focus on, you know, the the kind of standard eighteen, nineteen year old residential student, um, you know, holed up in their their tower block, which, you know, I totally understand is has been, you know, a, a, a travesty really. But you know, a university like mine, you know. We have a very, very, very small proportion of students living on campus. You know, a tiny percentage of our overall student population. Our students live locally, they're commuting in, um, and they're having to deal with, you know, other issues around um, caring for their families, having to take time off if their kids are home from school because their whole class has got to self-isolate. It's far more complicated. Um, and certainly for us, uh, that meant that we made probably quite different decisions around how we've delivered learning and teaching this year. Um, and we've actually you know, massively reduced uh, density on campus uh, because we wanted to ensure that students had flexibility to to do as much as they could online. Uh, and we prioritise specialist learning and teaching in those specialist spaces on campus. And that's that seems to have worked OK. Um, but there is a danger that, you know, um, the public uh, have you know, have this perception that, you know, a university experience involves being 18 year old, uh, 18 years old in a, in a large halls of residence. Um, it's not, it, it's exactly, it's, it's not that. But as Johnny says, you know, the social element is absolutely key. And as I said before, reference the idea of, you know, belonging, you know, coming and belonging to something can belong to a community. And you can do that whether you're a resident student or a commuting student. It just looks slightly different in terms of how it pans out from day to day. But you're right. I mean, the testing uh, statistics are, something we need to keep a very close eye on, I think. And of course, we've got the whole thing coming around again in January when students start to return. Now, now on that, right? So, Johnny, here's a question of scruples for you. Okay, you ready for this? This is a new, this is a new feature I've just invented. <laughs> so, you are a student that studies away from home. You're home for Christmas. You are leafing through the Christmas radio times three days before New Year's Eve. And you work out that your options for New Year's Eve are as follows. A, staying in with your parents to watch a Paddy McGuinness pre-recorded celebrity (laughs) special, or B, returning surreptitiously to your HMO, even though your university has advised you not to turn up till February to experience your face-to-face teaching. What do you do, A or B? Oh, uh, it's going to be the Paddy McGuinness. Actually, no, not Paddy McGuinness. I'm I'm going to go for Jules Holland's Hootenanny. I mean, we are really testing the limits of the Venn diagram here, John. If we think that there are... <laughs> um, I tell you what, though. I mean, the, I mean, Claire's right, isn't she? The, the other stat that I really liked in here, and I, you know, people will know. I think that I have a, a, an obsession with this. Was that of students that study away from home, 
47% plan to travel between their university and their home address during term time. So this idea that we have, you know, kind of Harry Potter in one box who turns up at the start of term and disappears at the end of term and then commuter students in another box. It's nonsense, isn't it? There's loads of students who sort of shuffle between addresses all throughout term, surely. Well, 47% according to this. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right. Uh, it's, you know, e- each university, uh, y- you know... that should know their students they should know their student population uh, they should understand you know the the multiple complex characteristics that the student body brings and you know that's how we should be that's what we should be using to tailor our approaches to learning and teaching during a global pandemic um there is not a one size fits all um solution um it's far more nuanced than that and i think you know certainly what we've tried to do is to to really, really empower and involve our program leaders who know their programs, they know what needs to be delivered, um, and they know their students really well. So, you know, they know what's going to work and what what isn't going to work. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, Now, every week on the podcast, we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. I think one of the things about university history is that um, we've always had it. We've always been interested in the in the previous history and what's been going on. So my favourite little bit is the fight between Oxford and Cambridge to be the oldest. So they set off, um, and we the historians know that um, there's learning happening all over the place, and slowly it coalesces into universities. But we know that Cambridge gets a big shot in the arm when um, there's a big riot in Oxford, and sufficient students and um, lecturers go over to Cambridge and get it going. And it's 1209, and it's fine, uh, and off they go. Um, but that sets up a precedence that clearly, if people left Oxford to go to Cambridge, then Oxford must be older than Cambridge. But all of the kind of precedence sits on who's the oldest university. So they get to the uh, 17th century, and this isn't enough. So you get this battle between these mad antiquarians as to who can be the oldest university. And they start producing books. So, I mean, this would be great, the referable stuff. Um, and they start making up quotes in order to guarantee that my university is older than your university. So Oxford kind of kicks off um, by saying that it was founded by King Alfred. Uh, so that puts it about 400 years older than it ought to be. But King Alfred founds it and they find um, a quote uh, that a guy sticks into a translation of Asser's Life of Alfred, saying that St. Grimble came over to found the University of Oxford. And he just puts it in this edition of the book. Um, it's completely bogus, but he just shoves it in. So that proves that Oxford is founded around 800. So that makes it yeah, nice and old. Um, but then, in the next edition, they decide that that's not enough. So they find an even older quote. And that says that Grimble didn't found it, he reformed it. And that it had been founded 400 years earlier than that um, by a bunch of um, Anglo-Saxon saints. Um, and they list all those saints out, and that's all very nice. And so they got a list of these people. Um, and so they're much older, so clearly they've they managed to push that back. And why is that? Well, Cambridge, as meantime, got to have found that they've been founded by someone called uh, Canterbury's. Uh, and um, he's been helped by King Arthur. So that pushes them earlier than King Alfred. So... Uh, they've been founded by King Arthur, and King Arthur's gone and found Athenian philosophers uh, to come over, um, and he's made his university, and they're, so they're much older uh, than Oxford. So clearly there's then a reaction, and so Oxford seems to trump the entire thing by coming up with this ruse, and it, it, it coalesces with the idea that England must be really old and ancient, it can't just be 
you know, an accident of um, successive waves of people invading it. So they were founded by the Trojans, who had escaped the siege of Troy, and they'd sailed around the Mediterranean, and they had arrived, and they'd set up the University of Oxford. Um, and to deal with the fact that there's a small issue of there not being any Greek temples in Oxford, to prove that it's actually you know, founded 2,000 years before Christ, um, they had this extra embellishment that it was burned down by the Romans. So they're so old that they were burned down by the Romans. So this backwards and forwards in order to get precedence produces these books. So each of the universities has a published book that lists their history up to the conquest 1066. We know that the universities could not have been in existence until at least 100 years after. But these guys have produced these fabulous books saying, we're so old that we've been going for so long. Because it, it mattered who goes first. And we're just used to saying Oxford and Cambridge. We're used to Oxbridge. And the precedence mattered because ecclesiastical performance and stuff like that. So off they go. So really fun that they're, you know, right from the outset, they're very keen on how ancient they are. The colleges fight for this. So this is kind of battle of who's the oldest college. So Oxford has three colleges uh, that claim it. Um, one has the oldest statutes, one has the oldest buildings, and one has the earliest foundation. And it's what makes the university, the old, you know, the college the oldest. Is it who gave them the money, who set up the buildings, or who had the first statutes? And I think there's a kind of tie now between Merton, Balliol, and Unif to say, well, it doesn't really matter. We're definitely the oldest, the three of us. We're, you know, but again, in the listings... It was by done by age, and therefore you wanted to be at the top of the list, and therefore you know that mattered. So this kind of thing about how old we are, which I mean, confess, I'm sitting in a university that is very proud to be 175 years old, even though it became a university in 1992. So that notion that we have to be old, we have to show our heritage, is very important to universities. There's just a thing about pecking order. Now, clearly, if we'd have been in a country where all of our universities had all been founded, been in the 19th century, maybe we wouldn't have this stuff. Now, the Higher Education Policy Institute has published a report on higher education in an age of climate change. Johnny, what does this tell us? Oh, this is an excellent paper. Um, very timely. And congratulations to Kerry Facer for writing it and happy for publishing it. Um, it gives us it basically tells us where universities, sh what role they should be playing in combating climate change. Um, and it's not just um, in one area of their activity. It's as civic institutions. It's as educational institutions. It is as hubs of um, defining uh, human interaction. It's all sorts of different th things. It covers a m massive area. Um, and... I was particularly struck, actually. As I do suggest people read the whole paper, not the summaries of it, because it's full of good stuff. But one of the things I was particularly struck by was the um, number of references she made to the way that we have faced up to the challenge of COVID um, and what that tells us about how we might face up to climate change. It's shown that um, we, both as humanity and as in higher education, can take on existential threats and find solutions. Um, but, you know, compared to climate change, dealing with COVID has been like mopping up a spilled cup of tea whilst there's a tsunami coming in at the window. Uh, uh, we, you know, we tend to think of climate change as a coming threat. It's not. It is already here. The tsunami has crashed. Um, and, you know, COVID had, still has, the potential to kill many millions. Unchecked climate change will kill billions and and that's just the humans. 
Um, and it won't end. There won't be a vaccine for climate change. We can't socially distance from the planet. We will need thousands of vaccine-like bre breakthroughs. And we will need to change the way we live, not just for a temporary lockdown, but permanently. And what this paper attempts to do um, is the same challenge that we all face in confronting climate change. How do you corral many actions by individuals or small groups or organizations into a strategic global approach whose effects will be larger than the sum of its parts? Now, now, to do that, that is possible because, in fact, that's what we've been doing painfully easily when it came to destroying our environment. <laughs> what we need to do is flip it so that the way of living that protects our environment on a local and global scale becomes the easier default way of being. Claire, I mean, I mean reading this, um, you know, there, there are some things that strike me would be moderately straightforward or to some extent are already being done by the sector and by individual institutions. And there are other aspects of this where I was <laughs> got my metaphorical highlighter pen out thinking as if. So, <laughs> you know, from a, from, from, a, from a sort of institutional strategic point of view, uh, you know, how realistic are the, you know, the recommendations in here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I agree with uh, John. It's, it's a great paper and it's a really good read and um, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and I'm certainly going to be circulating it amongst colleagues to as kind of um, essential reading, if you like. I, I totally agree with the thrust of the paper. It, it actually suggests that climate change is, um, it's not just about science, but that it's inextricably linked to um, issues linked to social inequalities and well-being in the broadest sense. And I love the fact that there is a, there's a clear call to universities to be uh, much bolder in their concept of civic mission. And that was the thing I kind of alighted on, really, the whole civic mission uh, part. It was very timely because we've actually just revised our own civic mission partnership strategy at Rex and Glendore. Uh, and actually, we've put as our kind of headline objective um, to end social inequalities, to work together with partners across our region to end social inequalities through looking at things like community resilience, keeping well uh, and cross systems working. So I think, you know, as a strategic um, pointer, it's a super helpful document. And the way that it kind of splits up um, approaches into, it talks about operations, you know, all the stuff that we're doing around uh, our, sustainable, our sustainability plans, you know, reducing emissions, um, biodiversity, all those sorts of stuff. Um, moving on to the civic role, which I say really jumped out to me and I think is a, a, a key lever in terms of working much more, um, uh, much better with, with partners, you know, within our communities and across our regions. Um, and then it moves on to things like, um, you know, the curriculum and uh, interdiscipli interdisciplinarity, uh, which I thought was a, a, a really interesting kind of way of looking at things as well. You know, what are we actually doing in terms of getting our, I know, our sustainable engineering people working alongside our, our health and wellbeing or allied health practitioners? Um, and then that kind of whole idea of refocusing the educational mission of the institution, you know, just what are we trying to achieve um, for our students uh, in terms of that, you know, much bigger aspect of um, citizenship, uh, being able to, um, well, direct quote from the paper, living well with each other. I really love that phrase. Uh, and with the planet, um, I think there's a real challenge there for, you know, curriculum content for those kind of graduate skills we often talk about, but also just 
you know, creating environments where it's more natural to have those sorts of, you know, big conversations across our student body with our staff and with key partners um, within our within our local, or regional and national communities. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here oh, with this God. week's correlation <laughs> question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kerner. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? Your weekly vaccination against spurious statistical reasoning. This week's question is very much a preview for a piece that should be out pretty soon on Wonky. I've been looking at old Unistats data to try to understand, well, to understand in more detail than the OFS key performance measures at least, how the subject areas offered as courses have changed over the past two years in UK higher education. I have data on the number of courses that are no longer offered and the number of new courses offered by detailed subject area, that's CAR Level 2. The question I'm asking you is basically whether the sector subject mix is shifting or if it is basically a steady state, with old courses in a subject being likely to be replaced by new ones in the same subject. So, the number of courses lost in two years versus the number of new courses in two years by subject. Does it correlate? Probably, <laughs> um, but there's issues over what we call courses and subjects, <laughs> and that's possibly the more interesting question. <laughs> I I think they are going to correlate. I think that we don't have a steady state, but I think it comes in waves. But I think, uh, yeah, as Claire says, it's it's going to be messed up. The data is going to be messed up by uh, the fact that. Um, things move move from one subject area to another and so on it's and yeah yeah too too noisy to get a good clear correlation but i think that there will be a correlation and the answer is very surprisingly yes r squared is 0.68 and thus we have a strong correlation However, here we reach the limits of linear correlation as an analytical tool. There are some wild outliers, and the answer belies the fact that the sector shrank by 2,300 courses with named subject areas over that period. Sports science and business are two key growth areas, whereas history is foremost among the shrinkages. Data is from two iterations of Unistat's data, that's January 2019 and October 2020, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, Brexit. Claire. This is this is just the you know, the, the continuing saga of of, of heaping um more uncertainty on more uncertainty and and at a time when you know we've just been discussing throughout this podcast universities are addressing you know big business continuity issues due to covid um you know brexit's been kind of bubbling away in the background but no one's really addressing anything but this the particular thing that's that's kind of come out over the past week is um a letter from the House of Lords EU Service Subcommittee uh, to the Secretary of State for Education, which is basically saying, you know, hang on a minute, we still haven't sorted out um, uh, UK participation in particularly in Horizon and Erasmus programmes. So we've still got, you know, huge issues over the potential of UK researchers missing out on funding and funding collaborations and students missing out on academic exchanges. And uh, the kind of House of Lords letter says, you know, again, I think that I'm sure they've made this point before, that if these, you know, if these funding opportunities are not available, then there are some hard policy decisions around how to focus the domestic research funding framework, including the um, proposed 
discovery fund and I, I don't think there are any more details about that yet but that's going to need to be that piece of work is going to need to be brought forward very very quickly and if we do lose Erasmus and there's no real replacement for it then there does need to be urgent work to kind of address that and and again it is it will be students from disadvantaged backgrounds who will again lose out because exchange programs without that funding without that support will just become totally unaffordable Johnny, just when I was getting cheered up because of a vaccine, the the, the Brexit, you know, sort of drags us back down to earth, doesn't it? It is a hurricane of horror. It really is. (laughs) You know, this has been a really cheery podcast. We've been talking about COVID. We've been talking about climate disaster and and now Brexit. Um, And every day I, I run two small businesses and every day I'm getting emails from the government telling me to be prepared. They're not prepared themselves. They haven't, they've had four and a half years and they have not been preparing throughout the entirety of that time. It is so infuriating, the disaster that we're staring down the barrel of. The, as Claire says, Erasmus needs to be supported. So does Horizon. And when I say Horizon needs to be supported, we need to be in the European system. We don't need our own system. There is a multiplier effect that the EPC has researched of being part of an international uh, partnership. You get far more bang for your buck from international partnership research funding than you do by trying to replace that pound for pound with UK funding. So even if an equal amount of money was forthcoming, it would not make up even anywhere close to what we're going to lose from being outside Horizon if we end up by mistake outside Horizon. And that's the problem. The whole thing is by mistake. Each progressive, iterative, bad step in the wrong direction has been a bad step by mistake. And Remainers like me, and I, I'm, I admit I'm a card-carrying Remainer. I, I was reading an article in um, the Financial Times the other day that was warning Remainers not to gloat at the disaster of Brexit. I am not gloating. And I, I don't think anyone, any Remainer in their right mind, is gloating at this disaster. Gloating at it would be like sitting on a branch with... Boris Johnson whilst he soars at the branch and laughing at how he's going to fall down and get hurt we're all going to get hurt by this and and there is no one to blame but the government for an appallingly bad handling of a situation that never needed to arise well that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links to blogs and whatnot in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via apple podcasts or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the wonky show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch so thanks to johnny and claire and everyone at team wonky for making it happen behind the scenes and until next week stay wonky This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.